Let's engage in some simple mental time travel. Imagine that you're transported back 20 or 30 years and your train is running late by 15 minutes. What will you do while you're waiting? Will you look around, read a book, talk to the person next to you, start daydreaming aimlessly? Now, let's shoot back to the present and reimagine the same situation. Once again, your train is late by 15 minutes. What will you do? Well, in this case, the answer is pretty easy. You're going to look at your smartphone, of course. You might do so with a specific goal in mind, like clearing your inbox, or you might have no goal at all and just want to avoid boredom by scrolling aimlessly through social media apps or by continually refreshing new sites with the hope of something interesting popping up. Our smartphones are always with us and we can feel anxious and lost if we're ever without them. Does any of this matter? And what does it do to our ability to be alone with our own thoughts and to let our mind wander freely? I'm your host, Professor Paul Formosa, and welcome to In the Cave, an ethics podcast. Here to help us think about these issues today is Dr. Yella Runeberg. Yella is a member of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE, and he's also a research fellow here in the Department of Philosophy at Macquarie University. Yella. Welcome to In the Cave. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, look, you've recently published an article in the journal Philosophy and the Mind Sciences with fellow caveman Dr. Regina Fabry about extended mind wandering. It's an interesting title, and I think it does a good job connecting the literature on extended mind with the new literature on mind wandering that's starting to emerge, and particularly thinking about some of the impacts that smartphones uh, might ha- be having on us. So before we start to look at all these details, I think a good place for us to start is if you could tell us what exactly mind-wandering in its kind of pre-smartphone form is, as far as we can go back that far. Uh, what is it and why is it important? Why is it worth thinking about? Sure. Yeah. So the best way to introduce mind-wandering, I think, is to contrast it with something else. So when I'm thinking about what to have for dinner or the recipe I want to cook, my thoughts are always guided towards one goal and each of the steps of my thinking makes sense in the light of that goal. Uh, So typical cognition is goal-directed, aimed at solving a particular kind of task. Now, mind-wandering is not that. It's not goal-directed, and it's a kind of relatively free-floating, meandering form of cognition. And so one one thing that makes mind-wandering interesting is its prevalence. So it's estimated that we spend about 30 to 50% of our waking cognitive life mind-wandering. And that is a lot. (laughs) That is a lot, yes, more than I thought. Uh, So so you can ask, like, if we do it so much, what is it good for? And for a long time, the answer has been, like, well, basically, mind-wandering is whatever you do when you have nothing better to do. And sometimes you do mind-wandering where you do have something better to do, and then we call it distraction. So the kind of examples you find in literature here is, like, you, you you sit and attend a lecture, and then uh, sometime during that lecture, your thoughts wander away kind of involuntarily to something unrelated to what you're currently something doing. Wa- something my students never do, of course. No, exactly. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so so mind-wandering is, is kind of then seen to be this kind of bad thing that should need to be avoided either by having a more engaging lecturer or by <laughs> kind of better paying attention or, 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 or something like this. And what you find in the recent list literature is a kind of, kind of shift to saying that, well, mind-wandering is not just not only bad, but actually has some, some kind of good properties as well. And it seems to be related to things like creativity and self-insight and so, and having a kind of sense of self over time. Many mind-wandering episodes are related to kind of uh, yourself in the past or yourself in the future. So it kind of contributes in some sense to a kind of identity over time. That kind of like spontaneous form of identity building seems to be one thing that's really fascinating about mind-wandering. Okay, so it's valuable when I'm wasting time. That's, that's good to know. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, look, that gives us a bit of a grip on mind-wandering. So now let's turn to the extended mind part and then we'll, we'll join them up in a, in a moment so let's start with the extended mind what do extended mind theorists claim what's their kind of core claim and in answering that could you differentiate between what you call first and second wave extended mind theorists in your paper yeah so the extended mind piece is very simply put just says that cognitive processes are not limited to the skull are not limited to what happens inside your head so part of the external world can become part of your cognitive system and typically these are things like either s- smartphones notebooks or so and these pieces comes at least in two flavors called waves 
And the first one is a kind of the traditional one that asks metaphysical questions about what is mind such that it can extend, under what conditions can parts of the environment become part of the mind. And this is this kind of championed by kind of the, the classical paper by Andy Clark and Dave Chalmers. So the most popular tool here is to look at function. So if a notebook and a computer serve the same function as a part of internal memory would do, then what is the reason to call one part of the mind and not the other part? And so this, this whole wave leads to a kind of set of metaphysical questions about what it is to be a mind. And these debates get rather abstract and kind of tunes away from all the various and different ways in which kind of minds can actually intermesh with the world. So there's been a move towards a second wave uh, in the extended mind literature, championed by some of the people here at, uh, at CAVE and the, and the philosophy department. And these people are not so much interested in these metaphysical questions, but more in the various ways in which brains, bodies, and tools complement one another in giving rise to a particular kind of process. And since kind of mind-wandering is not so easily tied to a particular kind of function, there's no goal in mind-wandering, so this kind of first wave is not really easy to apply, and so that's why we opted to kind of go for the second wave of embodied cognition. So you get the basic idea, cognition doesn't just happen in the skull, and that kind of makes sense when we think of tasks like, you know, um, calculating, we might use a calculator, for example, or ways we use other forms of technology to perform common cognitive tasks like remembering or planning or navigating and so on. So you discuss two particular biases that appear in this literature, which you call the cognitive task bias and the harmony bias. So you sort of start to touch on those a little bit, but maybe you could expand on that a little bit more, and I think that will help get us towards extended mind-wandering then. Great, yeah, so let's start with the, with the task bias. And so I think that the task bias is kind of pervasive all throughout cognitive science, not just in the extended cognition uh, literature. And so cognition is sometimes even defined as something that's being goal-directed, guided towards a goal or towards accomplishing a particular kind of cognitive task. And so what you find in the extended mind literature exa are exactly ways in which the environment or parts of the body might help kind of achieve those tasks, like navigating, memorizing. But this focus on cognitive tasks has kind of made people miss, I think, this kind of more kind of task unrelated forms of cognition that are happening uh, uh, as well. So the harmony bias is an interesting one. Uh, since it has started to receive a lot of kind of extra attention over the last year uh, or so. And so in a recent paper, uh, Danish philosopher Jesper Orgat calls, calls this the dogma of harmony in 4E cognition, and he identifies a kind of selective focus on kind of beneficial, harmonious, and successful interactions between body, brains, and environments to achieve cognitive goals. And he says, like, well, there is a lot of ways also in which the environment can be detrimental to the achievement of cognitive episodes, and we should kind of focus on those as well. Interesting. Actually, that sort of connects up with some other literatures around, uh, particularly around AI ethics and so forth, and morally skilling and so forth. So I think there's some interesting connections there. But let's uh, let, let's keep on on your uh, on topic here. And so I think we've sort of got all the bits together now. So we've got extended mind, we've got mind wandering. Let's let's join them all together and tell us exactly what extended mind wandering is and, and maybe how it differs from what we might call non-extended mind wandering or, or pre-smartphone mind wandering. Yeah. So the phenomenon we had in mind when started to think about this topic are something like the following, right? So as you mentioned in the introduction already, you stand waiting for the train on a platform and without too much thought, you bring, a, bring out your phone and start scrolling through an app and maybe you switch a little bit between different apps. And when, when the train arrives, you kind of put your phone away and get on the train and get on with your, with, with your day. Actually, on the train, everyone is still staring at their phone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you, maybe you get on the train and then kind of like the whole episode kind of starts all over yeah. again, kind of once you found the seat. Or you can also, like, in, in, in the presence of a different task, right? So, again, in the lecture, you can sit, listen to a lecture, maybe even try to listen to a lecture, and suddenly you find yourself crawling through, through a social media app or so. So, we were interested in this kind of undirected, habitual form of technology use that seemed to be actually rather prevalent. Like looking at, I confess, looking at my own <laughs> kind of life and looking around in when I'm taking the train. But it isn't really theorized so much, neither in the kind of psychological literature or as in the philosophical literature. 
And so this phenomenon of extended mind-wandering is kind of a weird beast from, from both the perspective of mind-wandering and from extended cognition. So in terms of mind-wandering, the phenomenology of extended mind-wandering seems to be similar, this kind of undirected form of cognition. But at least classically, the mind-wandering li literature has operated with a kind of, in order to mind-wander, you need to kind of perceptually decouple yourself from the environment. And this seems to be exactly a kind of case in which that wandering dynamic is coupled with the environment. So th th this is why the kind of integration with mind-wandering required a little work. And from the perspective of extended cognition, this kind of harmony bias and task bias is also kind of standing in the way of properly theorizing this phenomenon. And that makes it, I think, an, an interesting phenomenon to study both, yeah, for both of these literatures uh, together. And so I guess, Kevin, what exactly is the key difference then between extended mind-wandering and non-extended mind-wandering? Is it, is it the use of technology to facilitate the mind-wandering? Is that the main difference? Exactly, yeah. 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 Okay. And it could be a smartphone, could be something else? It could, in principle, anything else. I think how we demarcated it in the paper is thinking like things with an interface and so. So it seems to be like a technology with that you kind of command by voice or so would be diff more difficult mm. to mind wander with, but it's really kind of this kind of meandering, scrolling dynamic or so that seems to be like the prototypical kind of cases. And that could you could do that, of course, on a smartphone, a tablet, or, yeah. uh, or a computer even. Interesting. Okay, so in the paper you developed two theses, what we can call the replacement thesis, which is basically the idea that you know, traditional pre-smartphone mind-wandering is starting to be replaced more and more by extended mind-wandering, and the functionality thesis, which basically says, look, this replacement might be a bad thing. We can look at the details in a moment. So let's look at those two theses in turn. So let's start with the first one. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think the replacement thesis might be true? What evidence do we have that, that this is replacing traditional, rather than maybe being in addition to traditional mind-wandering? Exactly, yeah. So the replacement thesis, or thinking about it, came from the kind of example that started with. Kind of, so you stand waiting for a train, and you could either mind-wander without technology, or you can bring about your phone. And so the idea is that, that once you have acquired a checking or scrolling habit, you fill up your empty time, kind of rather than mind-wandering, you spend it kind of scrolling through the technology. So, so, or rather than non-extended mind-wandering, you, you now uh, spend it extended mind-wandering. And so what, what we find in the literature is some circumstantial evidence that, it, that this is the case. So none of these studies exactly kind of target extended mind-wandering. This is a kind of rather new phenomenon that hasn't really been operationalized. So, so in the recent literature, we find kind of some circumstantial evidence in, 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 in this is the case. So for example, in the in literature on multimedia multitasking, you find that if you let people do a simple cognitive task and you ask them how often do you mind-wandering, there's a certain percentage of, of kind of responses that, that say, well, I'm mind-wandering quite a lot. But then if you let people, besides doing this cognitive task, also watch or give them the opportunity to watch a video, then suddenly the amount of responses that say, I'm not focusing on the primary task, go up. Or the amount of responses that say, like, no, I I'm, I'm was thinking about something else altogether, that goes down. So it seems like the amount of task unrelated cognition increases, but the specific kind of non-extended mind-wandering part of it goes down. So that is some evidence that if you add this, so to say, kind of affordance for, uh, for doing something else related to, to a social media, that decreases the amount of mind-wandering. Yeah, and um, there's other evidence that sort of shows that social media use can lead to reduced ability to control your attention, which seems obviously somewhat related to this as well. Yeah. And look, I think I think we can all grant that from our own experience, this does seem fairly accurate. So I guess then we want to move on to the functionality thesis, which starts to think, okay, well, you know, norm the normative question, like, does this matter? Is it, is it good or bad? And so um, is it just the same thing done somewhere else? Was it actually 
different? Is it worse in some sort of way, and why? Yeah, so so there, there, there's a lot of ways of approaching the, yeah. the, this question, and and so one way of going is asking yourself the question, like, so what is it about non-extended mind wandering that makes it into something beneficial as well sometimes? And so one thought here is that non-extended mind wandering is often related to self-related information, so you think is about yourself in the future, in the past, and that gives rise to a kind of rich mental phenomenology of yourself or over time. And this same amount of the same kind of self-related information is not what you encounter on your typical social media app. And quite often this information is self-related, but in a way more comparative way with other people or comparative way with other ideals. So I think the recent evidence that, for example, Instagram use is kind of detrimental to, to, to the self-image of teenagers so really fits into this thing that in that wandering you receive a different kind of information that feeds in a different way to your self-image over time, which is which is definitely not at, at the same bar of non-extended forms of mind-wandering. And so it's not the sort of mind-wandering that's, I guess, prompting some of these kind of self-reflective thoughts that you, we talked about at the start. It's, it's something else is going on there. Exactly. So, so, so y- yeah, it seems to be a form of mind-wandering that keeps prompting kind of particular forms of comparative reflection or so that are not beneficial for someone's self-image. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that leads to the next question, which is to sort of situate what's going on here in the broader attention economy. Like, you know, what's going on is these apps are designed to grab our attention. There's lots of things that will grab our attention. A loud siren, a clap of thunder grabs our attention. But addictive social media apps and, and other apps and so forth on our phone do try and grab and monopolize our attention. And that's not, that's by design. That's that's how they'd be designed. Um, this is the idea of the attention economy um, where, you know, our attention is scarce and uh, they want to capture it. So can you sort of situate, you know, some of these replacements being looked at, the replacement and the, the functionality thesis in many ways seem to be driven by how the attention economy is designed. Is that is that sort of what you think? I mean, how, how does this sort of fit together? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so I think this is, this is what we try to more speculate towards yeah. the end of the paper to see like how, how does these issues fit together. So simply put, the attention economy is economic system in which our attention or the user's attention is being kind of the scarce resource that companies fight over. And so this means that all of these platforms have a monetary interest in monetizing our engagement, so keeping us engaged as long as possible, as well as making us return on a regular basis. And so and so it seems quite obvious that there's a kind of mismatch here between those goals of these co- companies and these goals of these platforms and our own goals. So, so uh, philosopher James Williams kind of tends to joke, kind of no, no one wakes up in the morning thinking how long can I spend on social media, yet these seems to be the engagement goals that are, that are put there for us. So from the perspective of the attention economy, the relevant difference between extended and non-extended mind-wandering is the amount to which the field through which we wander is being optimized and designed. Right, so so both and, con- and controlled by someone and else. controlled yeah. exactly. So so feels kind of from the first person as a kind of free meandering through a kind of field is indeed from from a third person perspective highly optimized and highly controlled, actually to lure you and direct you in in, in, in ways that some other entity wants you to go rather than that you want to go. So it's interesting. So it, it's sort of a, a shift away from. I mean, we talked about mind wandering right at the very start. It's very much something that's kind of outside the economic system in a sense. Like it's not functionally useful for some uh, for a particular task. I mean, this is the, the task bias you talk about. It's just this sort of thing we do, but yet it has this kind of rich value to our inner life and so forth. And, you know, I guess what you're pointing towards is the way that that has been, I guess, hijacked, I suppose, by these economic interests, which are then transforming that non-task in, into this economically valuable activity they want to kind of monopolize and, yeah. and, and yeah. sort of take control of. Yeah, and, and 
I think there is a really important lesson here for the attention economy literature itself. So what you find quite often is that this the problem of attention is put in terms of control, saying like, oh, it used to be so easy to control our attention and now it's so difficult with all these technologies. But I think the phenomenon of extended mind-wandering shows that can't be the whole uh, story. So I think mind-wandering in general shows that controlling attention is and controlling your wandering, controlling your thoughts is always difficult and actually yeah. rather, rather rare. And so what we need to do is not necessarily kind of regaining control kind of conscious cognitive control over over attention but more give room to this kind of more free-floating meandering kind of dynamic without it being hijacked by these technologies so the what needs to be cultivated is not necessarily kind of cognitive control but but this free meandering and i think that is that is something that the attention economy can kind of learn a bit from so what do we do turn off our smartphones what's the answer here <laughs> yeah that's a good question i don't want to suggest that these kind of technologies are intrinsically bad but way more the kind of economic system in which they are embedded Right, so you can think even about apps like uh, that, or like just just even like a simple photo album, right? Like non a non technology can really kind of scaffold forms of episodic remembering, can yeah. scaffold kind of identity over time. So it's not that kind of extended mind wandering is something that's intrinsically inferior to kind of other forms of mind wandering, but actually properly scaffolded mind wandering can actually be beneficial to to all these things. So it's really the embeddedness of extended mind wandering in the attention economy that gives rise to these vicious kind of things. So in the moment, perhaps turning off your phone might be the best solution, but hopefully over time, changing the, those economic incentives in the digital uh, domain might, might also just lead to a more conducive digital domain in general. That sounds nice. So that's, <laughs> that's a nice way to, to end things. So thanks very much, Yellow. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Screen time is not just a developmental issue for children. It is something that clearly impacts all of us. We live in an age of information abundance and attention scarcity, and there are lots of different ways we can think about some of the ethical implications of this shift. And one important and somewhat neglected aspect of this is the shift from non-technologically mediated mind-wandering, just you know, being alone with ourselves, letting our mind wander and, and seeing where it will go, to this state where that doesn't really happen. It's always directed by others. We're never really alone. We're never bored. We've always got some device on hand to fill up every spare moment of our lives. Now, while there are clear benefits to technology like this, there are also really important costs, and we need to be conscious of those and think about how we can maybe make more mindful uses of our technology. But that is all we have time for today. If you wish to read Yella and Regina's paper, there are links in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time. And this podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE, and I have been your host, Professor Paul Mosa. Thanks. This is a Piccolo podcast production.